this just in. Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast of the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm Darren. I'm Andrew. And I'm Stacey Grodin. And this week we're talking about a recent entry on the list and presumed Oscar frontrunner coming out of the Golden Globes, Martin McDonough's Three Billboards Outside Outing, Missouri. And joining us for this discussion is Stacey Grattan. Now, I have listened to a couple of our podcasts back and I discovered I'm not particularly good at introducing guests. <laughs> so, Stacey, would you like to introduce yourself to listeners? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, I'm Stacey Grattan. I write about films and I'm the film review editor on uh, state.ie and I'm on Twitter at Silver State Crowd. Perfect. All right, then. So, um, Basically, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, uh, which was released in November in the States. It was released this weekend in the UK and Ireland. Um, It also conveniently came into the 250 uh, sometime during the last week as well. It's an interesting film in many respects because it's generated a lot of press. It sort of came up and crept up out of nowhere to become the frontrunner for Best Picture, which in some ways makes it equivalent to this this year's La La Land. Uh, We'll probably talk a bit more about the similarities in that sense. But it's also... um, (laughs) It's an interesting film in many respects because it's generated so much discussion and sort of generated so much buzz, even though there's a sense that it still hasn't rolled out. It hasn't arrived and people have already been talking about it. But I've had the luxury of seeing it, I think I've seen it five times um, in since November. Um, I've actually seen it twice this week as part of the rollout. Um, you, Stacey, you saw it on Monday, I believe? I saw it on Monday and I wasn't actually aware that I was about to see it because it was a secret screening in Rathmines in the Omniplex there. So all I knew about it going in was that it was a comedy drama and then, well, suddenly it was three billboards from Emming, Missouri, which had just won Best Picture at the Golden Globes the previous night. So I was really excited and surprised to see it kind of in that context. So I've just seen it the once. And Andrew, you've also... Just, well, I've, I've, I've just seen it the once. Yeah, I've, I've, um, I've just seen it. Just Literally this instant. Yeah. Literally just stopped <laughs> just watching finished. it before we started exactly. recording. So what did you guys make of it? Like, what, initial impressions of Three Billboards. Like, did you come to it blind? Had you heard sort of stuff about it beforehand? Like, Mark McDonough is a somewhat polarising filmmaker. Obviously, he did In Bruges, which made the list and generally well regarded. He also did Seven Psychopaths, which didn't make the list and also is perhaps not as highly regarded. So in terms of that, like, how would you see, how would you rank Three Billboards as kind of the third Martin McDonough film? Well, I, I guess I'll let Stacey go first. Uh, <laughs> I, like, I like jumping in there. That was very yeah. nice to jump yeah. in there and then sort of <laughs> just say, push the buck. Um, I'm going to let Stacey talk. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but I actually understand why you're doing that because you have just seen it today. Right? Yeah. So I would say even my own feelings about this film have changed quite a bit since Monday that I think it does take some time to settle with you that... There are some kind of issues and themes and characteristics of this film that I think you need a little bit of time to try and digest. And uh, I don't know, I would say in some ways it's his most mature film in terms of the kind of themes and the types of characters that he's dealing with, right? He's moved on from kind of low-level gangsters and psychopaths and these sort of almost caricatures of characters in a way. Now, obviously there's moments of great humanity in both In Bruges and Seven Psychopaths, but um, well, they have a sort of a Tarantino-esque vibe in many ways. It's more where everything's sure. heightened and exaggerated yeah. and over the top. Yeah, whereas um, these characters, at least um, kind of our primary characters, Mildred, uh, Willoughby and Dixon, feel kind of a little bit more lived in and a little bit more complex. Um, so I do think he's doing some very interesting things there, um, just in terms of the characters. 
But yeah, I I think it's a film with problems also. Uh, I think in terms of the structure, it's a little bit all over the place. Oh, it's completely messy. Yeah, it's a real mess. And it is, and and Mm. we'll probably talk about this when we get to the sports song, because there are elements of this film where it it looks like it's going in a particular direction. It even looks like it's focusing on particular characters, and then it takes a sharp turn and sort of shifts focus away or shifts emphasis Mm -hmm. in a way that doesn't really... it, It jars. The first time I watched it, there is a moment in it, and anybody who's seen the movie will know what that moment is, and anybody who hasn't seen the movie will have to wait till late in the podcast to find out what it is. Mm-hmm. But the moment where that, that sort of, the first time I watched it sort of shook me, mm-hmm. sort of take me, it took me out of it, because it was a film that, I thought it was going to be a different sort of film, yes. and I thought a character arc was going to go a different direction, yes. and then it takes a sharp left turn. And what's interesting is, and you're right, I think you're maybe right about distance, needing distance from it, because mm. I've seen it a couple more times since, and knowing that that element was coming, um, it makes more sense. It flows a bit more naturally. It becomes sure. like I think the the plan or the arc of the film overall becomes a bit clearer. Mm-hmm. Uh, now you're right. I think that there is an element of it that does feel. There are points where it feels like it's almost being made up as it goes along. I think McDonough's mm-hmm. talked about how when he writes, he doesn't write with a clear ending in mind. Mm-hmm. I think when you've watched um, <laughs> any of his films, particularly this one, it's mm-hmm. very clear that he doesn't have a clear ending in mind. And you wonder if he has a clear ending in mind when he actually gets to the end of the film. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I, I actually quite like the flow of it. I like the sort of almost improvisational aspect of it, the sense that it's being in some ways made up as it goes along, but that it has a kind of a clear arc in terms of theme and in terms of certain characters as well. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I um, the thing thing you said about him not knowing where 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 things were going to go. I felt with within Bruges that like a lot of kind of threads seemed to kind of come together um, towards the end of the movie, and that the the characters kind of had sorts of journeys that they went on, and it, like made sense as a movie. I quite liked in Bruges. Um, I I didn't like Seven Psychopaths, which which is. Which is strange. I didn't even enjoy Christopher Walken in it, which is a crazy thing for me to admit. <laughs> because I'll I'll see any bad movie with, with Christopher Jack. Walken yeah. in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and or Prophecy Three. Country Bears. What was yeah. the ping pong one? Oh, Balls of Fury. Balls of Fury. Balls of Fury is not as awful as it by all accounts should be. Yeah. It's still pretty bad. But it's still not as bad. It's, it's not as bad as you expect. Yeah, it, yeah. it's like yeah. Ben Ben Garrett and Thomas Lennon uh, have write it. I was, I was oh. looking at they 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 have a book um, for um, for aspiring um, filmmakers and, and screenwriters. It's like from the writers of both. Yeah, <laughs> it says on the back of it. It's like it has all of these kind of like quotes. One of them's from Ben Stiller, and it's like um, I don't. If it wasn't for, for these two. Night at the Museum too wouldn't have won as many Oscars <laughs> or something along those lines. Well, I mean, there's an element of that. Like Justin Theroux is a great actor. He's very good mm. at say the leftovers and stuff like that. Uh, he's a wonderful dramatic actor. He also wrote Zoolander, Zoolander Two, and Tropic Thunder. That's uh, right. Yeah. So there's a very interesting sort of other side to these actors. And I know Thomas Lennon is a comedian of himself. Yeah. So he, mm. it makes more sense for him to have written Balls of Fury, but it is kind of. Uh... I think Herbie fully loaded as well. Really? Yeah, yeah. What Thomas Lennon wrote. Yeah, yeah. Really so. a whole different side. It's like it's like Tom Amazing. McCarthy. Yeah, it's like yeah. Tom McCarthy directing Spotlight after appearing in 2012. Because I remember <laughs> I watched 2012 recently, <laughs> and I was like, you know, the the boy, for, you know, the director from Spotify, from not from Spotify, from Spotlight, is <laughs> playing the boyfriend of Amanda Peet's character. Yeah. He's clearly going to die in the first 15 minutes, <laughs> but he's there for like three hours. And I'm like, how did I not register this beforehand? Um, <laughs> 
but it is. It's it's very good. Back to talking about three billboards. What did you make of three billboards, Andrew? Um, I I thought it was it was it was better than um Seven Psychopaths. Anyway, um, and it, it's funny the the way Martin McDonough talks about it. He's like uh, the other movie or like the second one. Oh yeah, he, he's very, he's not very proud of his work <laughs> on Seven re- Psychopaths. I liked it more than most, but he's, yeah, yeah, he's very much distanced himself and sort of drew a line under it. Absolutely, I I, I was I he was wrote less... this before he wrote Seven Psychopaths. That's right. It was like back in like two thousand seven or or um or two thousand nine, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And he sort of he got the idea, I think, from in the late nineties, sort of turn of the, the millennium when he was travelling down sort of oh, Florida, that's right. Alabama, yeah, Georgia. Yeah, yeah. And he Sorry. saw the three were, billboards. Yeah, yeah, there were actually three billboards that mm. inspired him to write this. I think it's kind of interesting because when you watch it you get a sense that maybe Maybe the movie is set against the backdrop of the early 2000s rather than now. Because mm-hmm. there's even stuff like there's the line where, this isn't a spoiler, but like where later in the movie where they're talking about a character who was overseas doing something classified. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's, he, was, he was in a place. Yeah. I, think, I thought has, about that as well. It has, lots of, me. Yeah, it has lots of sand. And you're mm-hmm. like, well, if this movie's set in like 2016, there are lots of places overseas where there's lots of sand. But if it's set in the early 2000s, that's a bit clearer which place with sand that he's talking about. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so it is. It is interesting in that sense because he went off. He did Seven Psychopaths, and then he came back and he basically did this. Like this was gestating for a long time. Whereas Seven Psychopaths, I think he described mm. it as being sort of rushed. Mm-hmm. And do you think that that shows through? Do you think that this has the look of a project that he took his time with? That he sort of like he turned over in his head, or I don't know. I'm, honestly, I, I I wasn't mad about this movie. It wouldn't be in my kind of. Well, it would be in my consideration for for, for best picture, but I wouldn't be um, considering it very strongly. Because uh, it is, it's the front runner now. It's come out with all, all sure. the critics. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, I mean, it, it's it's um, there there is there is some humanity to to this movie, but I I think for the most part, it it's it's quite a kind of um, ugly kind of pessimistic kind of it's uh, a very mean movie yeah absolutely yeah. it is an astonishingly well, I, mean movie and when I say ugly uh, it looks beautiful and, yes. and, the, the, <laughs> and it, uh, some 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 of the music as well is, is uh, Carter Burwell's score which yeah. is very very good oh. it gives it's it sort cool. of a western atmosphere absolutely um, so yeah it, it's it's um, the colour and the, the, the shooting in it is is, is, is great but um, yeah it's 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 it was very, it was very bleak for me, and it, 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 uh, oftentimes in McDonough movies, they sometimes seem like there's a kind of a an an unnecessary kind of um, uh, meanness, I, I, I guess, to them, um, where it 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 feels like, and and from I mean, from listening to from listening to him talk about the movie, it sounded like he wanted it to be more that way mm-hmm. that 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 the performance of Frances McDormand kind of struck a chord with some people where there was a kind of a heroism in her that he didn't put on the page um so it yeah the, the, it's 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 not a, um it's a, yeah it's I want to actually talk about that because that's one of the things that sort of struck me seeing the movie because it was filmed I think in late 2016 it's obviously written long before that, but in, in the moment, the cultural moment where it's been released, and even, like, it was released in, in the States, like, it was, you know, doing its pre-screenings in September. I saw it in November and stuff like that. But it seems like 
in the context that it's been released, it's been sort of rebranded. And I think McDonough has, has been part of this. And I think it's a very cynical move. It's been rebranded almost as part of like a, a, the Me Too movement. It's been presented as a yes. movie of feminist violence, of sort of righteous um, yeah. women's anger. Um, and I feel like that branding is very cynical because I suspect that's part of where the movement for it for Best Picture is coming from, where this big push is as you know, as an important movie is sort of coming behind because it's, it's a movie about Frances McDormand as a mother who's righteously angry at a world that doesn't seem to care. But there's also, I think that that obscures a lot of what the movie seems to be saying. Because like, it, it, I think you're right when you talk about McDonough wanting the movie to be bleaker than it appears to have been. And mm. McDormand's performance being part of that, but also branding it as, or trying to tie it to that social movement, gives it a, a righteousness which I feel the movie doesn't earn or the movie isn't yeah. even aiming for. Because like, obviously the Me Too movement is entirely justified and righteous and, and fair and a reckoning that's long overdue. But in the context of this film, there's a sense of like, all this anger only begets greater anger. There's mm-hmm. a sense that violence and anger is futile. It's a burning fire that will consume everything that touches it, that will spread and warp and distort people and mm. lead to consequences that you can't properly sort of foresee. And whereas anchoring that to a movement in the real world, a, mo- a cultural moment that is built upon like holding people to account feels like a miscalculation. I feel like maybe that's a large part of why the response, first of all, the response has been so enthusiastic for it, but why the backlash has been so aggressive towards it. Because I don't think, I don't think it's a socially conscious movie in the way it's been marketed as, if that makes sense. So, yeah. 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 Um, it's kind of a, a problematic, I suppose, yeah. be, be, because of the kind of, um, you can kind of celebrate and lionize the the ferocity or the fierceness um, of this character that isn't necessarily attached to um, any strong, I guess, morality or rationality. It's more of a, it's coming from a place of anger. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than rather than justice, if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I I wonder like Stacy, would you sort of would you agree with that? Would that make sense, or am I sort of reading too much into it? Yeah. Think? No, I think you are right that there is this big push for it as a film about like a righteously angry woman seeking justice when. You know, as we'll get into, I feel like the film takes a turn almost away from that and has us kind of interrogate the idea that this is kind of a useful thing for her to pursue. And I think the film is quite uneven in a lot of ways in terms of the way it deals with gender and the way that it deals with even race. Um, Some of it, you know, feels a little bit, as I said, kind of inconsistent that you kind of start out with this woman who is very righteously angry about something really terrible that has happened um, to her daughter. And I don't know, it almost feels like a very, to be cynical about it, I'm sorry that I'm rambling so much, but to be cynical about it. We ramble a lot. It's good to have somebody on the podcast who's in that wavelength. Who's who's into rambling, okay. The crime is so heinous against uh, Mildred's daughter, who's Frances McDormand's daughter, that it almost seems designed to emotionally manipulate you and get you on side with her immediately. It's like, it's not that just that she was murdered, but she was completely brutalized before she died. And it, it just feels like a little too easy. It reminds me of like, whenever you watch a movie or a TV show and they're like, how do we need to show that this villain is like particularly villainous? It's like, oh, we'll make him a rapist. You know, it's like, we need to make this so heinous so that we immediately connect with this woman and, can identify with her quest for justice. And in this particular moment, when so many women are coming out and speaking out against sexual assault, it, it does feel cynical to tie it and to kind of make that connection. 
in terms of the use of, of Mildred's daughter and the, the suffering that Mildred's daughter mm. endures, and I think you're, you're right that it is a very cheap and very crass way of generating mm. sympathy, but I think it, I would argue it works relatively well in the context of the film itself, ignoring sure. the publicity around the movie, but it works well because I think the film is structured in a way to get you on side with Mildred and then sort of pull the rug out from under you in some sense. Yes. In that I think the film only really works if you begin from a place where you are on Mildred's side and mm-hmm. then you, you begin to wonder as it goes or... But it, but it is very cheap and it is kind of crass and vulgar the the way the way it's 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 gotten a, a kind of like just thrown out. Yeah, I guess it's maybe underestimating people's um, the audience if 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 that's what it's trying to do. It, it's not really doing it in a very kind of artful <laughs> manner for me. Way, yeah. yeah, it's the sledgehammer approach basically. Yeah. it's the you know you hammer you hit the audience as hard as you can as fast as you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I would, I think, be perhaps a little bit more sympathetic towards it than, than either of you guys. But I can understand that, and I think it's a fair... No, it of, seems like a McDonough kind of a thing. He's not particularly but, nuanced yeah, well, I mean, this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, this, is, this is, isn't the spoiler zone, but I think it's, it's fair to say that, like, for example, in Bruges features the death of a child for yeah. a similar, like, emotional punchline, mm-hmm. you know, which is, you know, the same sort of the thing that you do in a movie to prove to the audience that you mean business, mm-hmm. and you want to get an immediate visceral reaction as you kill a child. Mm-hmm. And, like, I mean, even, even Seven Psychopaths, for example, is, is fairly, like, its characters are nihilistic. Its characters mm-hmm. are completely, almost without empathy. There's nobody in the movie, I think, that you can sympathize with as well. No. And I think that McDonough is, in some ways, very crass in that respect. I think that, yeah that does shine through and it's interesting that you should describe it as a more mature film in some ways because it is but I think maybe that maturity makes the other elements stand out yes no I would agree with that because and that's why I was very careful to be to say in terms of the characterization it's more mature I think in terms of the scripting and the plotting and the structure it's a little bit messier would you guys agree with that I I probably well I don't I don't know if it's messier but I think Mm. maybe that you get a sharper contrast with the more mature characters if that makes sense yeah Um, no I know what you mean yeah yeah I think that there's bigger divide and that this looks and feels like a more prestigious or important movie than it is in some ways. Yeah, yes. that's, Which is, uh, that's the jarring thing about it is that this is kind of um, a... A best picture frontrunner. Yeah. Let's like, yes. be clear about <laughs> it. This. It like, certainly ap- ap- appears uh, a prestige movie in parts. And, and yet there's, yeah, all this kind of... Um, it's very pulpy. It's very... Yeah. There's this nastiness to it yeah, that's yeah. present in McDonough's other work, but... That he still hasn't really grown out of, I suppose. Almost an exploitation quality to it, Mm. if that makes sense. Um, And I I kind of, I I do respond to that. Actually, Mm. I really like, I get the sense I like this film more than either of you guys did. I I liked Mm. a great deal. And I responded Mm. to the weird contrast between that prestige picture and that mean trashiness. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I do find it weird. I have a weird time sort of making sense of it in the context of it being a best picture frontrunner. Aside of the fact that it... Was, it has been very cannily marketed mm-hmm. um, and that it arrived at a cultural moment that it's sort of exploited but in some ways has like boomeranged on it because like mm-hmm. I get the sense that a lot of the criticism that's that's coming at it is directed because it's seen as a socially important movie when I don't think it was trying to be a socially important movie until it became a possible Oscar contender and then everybody doubled down on it. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that for sure you know it's while it's more mature as I said in terms of its characterization I don't think it is drastically different or distinct from other McDonough stuff in terms of, as you say, this kind of pulpiness to it. It's not a film I necessarily would have expected to be uh, heralded as this important socially conscious movie. I would never look to McDonough for that. (laughs) Uh, And now suddenly that's what the conversation has turned into. 
And I would say the part of that as well is uh, its treatment, as I said, of certain gender and uh, racial, racial issues tension well. issues. Yeah, which we'll definitely get into. Um, but again, I would never have looked to Martin McDonough for a nuanced discussion of any of these things. He, so uh, he is, to be clear, an Irish yeah. playwright, and he's writing mm-hmm. about a, a you know he's writing a movie set in the deep south. Yes. Um, it almost seems absurd to expect a level of relevance with regards to race and gender, even gender issues in the United mm-hmm. States, that it seemed to have been heaped upon the film itself. Now, I think those, yeah, I think those criticisms are fair, and I think mm-hmm. they're invited by the, the way the film's been pushed, but mm-hmm. I also think they aren't necessarily the be-all and end-all of the film. But, I mean, we'll get into that when we talk about the spoilers. I think mm-hmm. it would, in that case, then, like, I guess the only questions left to ask are basically, well, first of all, would you recommend that people see this film? Second of all is, you know, do you think that it belongs on a ranking of the top 250 movies of all time as voted for by Andrew users? And then, I guess, third of all, because we're going into Oscar season, like, would how would this rank on your best picture ballot if you were voting? So, I mean, first of all, like, would you recommend people see this film, guys? Uh, no, no. I, uh... <laughs> Oh no, and and and, and I, I haven't had much um, distance, I guess, from 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 the movie. I've I've, um, I've just seen it. So, but my immediate Im- Im- impression is that I didn't uh, like this movie. You didn't and, like this movie at all. I mean, it it, it had a, it had a lot to recommend about itself. I I, mm-hmm. I, I talked about how um, how gorgeous some some of it was. There was also some great performances. Uh, but yeah, there, there was there was there was there was there was a meanness to it. I think um, be beyond um, what what I was comfortable with. I don't like really li- um, living in 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 that world. I I think sometimes the the actors kind of save a lot of the um, material material. Mm. Yeah, from 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 what McDonough creates. Um, I, on, think, on I think a, it is. Well, I mean, I, yeah. I would argue this is this is an actor-driven movie to the point where it is mm-hmm. like the discussion that you should be having is whether you know Mac- McDormand is the favorite or hopefully the favorite for best actress. Mm-hmm. You also have, I mean, like you have two actors in this film, uh, Rockwell and obviously Harrison, who are competing for supporting actor trophy as well. Yeah. Like I mean, and even the the well-rounded supporting cast featuring like people like for example. Um, Caleb Landry Jones, who is one of those great supporting actors, been around forever. Mm-hmm. Peter Dinklage, who's also like been around forever, has got some great material here. There's even like uh, even smaller roles, you know, for example, like uh, Pam, who's played by Kelly Condon, for example. Mm-hmm. Like, there's all sorts of like the cast is phenomenal. I think mm-hmm. that a lot of and in particular, say Mildred, the character of Mildred. Like you talked about the warmth that the movie generates coming largely from that performance rather than the script. And I think that's entirely fair. I think that's like, yeah. I think that a lot of the reason why you're on side with Mildred, you know, Stacey mentioned obviously that the incredibly transparent manipulation that the script goes to, mm. but like getting you past that is the fact that McDormand just plays this ferocity and then the vulnerability underneath it, which gives you a wonderful contrast. And I think that it's almost, I don't want to say, I don't want to compare it to say Darkest Hour, which is just a delivery mechanism for Gary Oldman competing for his Oscar. <laughs> mm. um, like it, it's basically, it's, it's like that suspension liquid that you put a vaccine in. That, um, yeah, I, just just coming, 
just coming back from the states, it seems to be huge buzz for 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 that. The way the way that they're they do they do advertisements very differently in in California <laughs> to oh, the yeah, way they do they're here. They're for voters, aren't they? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so you actually have for your consideration, or this this exactly. movie, is, and, this movie and, for this performance. And you you have like in the trailer, you have the director talking about the movie. What? So you have like Christopher Nolan saying talking about like Dunkirk, and of course what? they're advertising Dunkirk at, at this time of year, not because it's in the theaters, but because they want they people want who are people, in cinemas to yeah. vote for it. Wow, which is remarkable. Like I am on mailing this I occasionally get like screeners and publicity material and it's overwhelming when you open up one of these so for example the the, the three billboards one and it's literally just pull quotes from reviews of the film which see they seem to exist solely like so you receive the screener and if you can't be bothered to watch this film <laughs> yeah. like, if you can't be bothered to form your own opinion we created some for you mm -hmm. um, well, that you can who, drop into conversation who has the time there? <laughs> yeah to actually watch movies I'm sure there are there, there are likely people who who do nothing but uh, review movies who don't review as many movies as you do now. <laughs> <laughs> um, Darren with a full time job. And I like that. It's, it's like, yeah. that's my Jenny with the block song, the Darren with a full time job. <laughs> <laughs> by, the, by the reviews that I got, I'm still, I'm still Darren with a full time job. Yeah. Um, He'll still cook you breakfast. Yes. Um, but uh, so, Stacey, what about you? Did you, would you recommend people see this film? I'd recommend it with uh, a big butt. A la DJ Mix-a-Lot. And um, you cannot lie. <laughs> and I cannot lie. I'm like, yes, but be very aware that this is a Martin McDonough movie. He has not made this dramatic about turn from In Bruges, Seven Psychopaths, or even his theatrical work. Uh, while, as I, I feel like I keep repeating myself, so I'm so sorry, but the characterization is more mature and the performances are superb. It does still have this kind of pulpy, nasty quality to it that permeates his earlier work. So if, you know, if someone said, oh, I really want to see a, a good movie about the Me Too movement or about Black Lives Matter, I'm like, do not go and see this movie. Do not go and see this movie um, expecting any kind of nuanced discussion of those issues. But I would recommend it for the performances, I think. Oh, yeah. I think I would recommend it because Frances McDormand probably does deserve that Oscar. Um, oh, everything does, yeah. that she has won for this movie thus far I know she has the Critics' Choice and the Golden Globe and probably other things that I haven't been keeping track of but she definitely deserves she has like a little, a little cupboard that's specifically labelled just three, three billboards, billboards. she yeah. actually has three <laughs> closets of awards yeah. um, but I, I do feel like that's actually a, a very good point because I mean mm. this has been a phenomenal year in terms of the actress race mm -hmm. which is normally seen as something that's understaffed it's only filled with like wives and girlfriends because that's generally what these awards fair roles write for, for women this year is a phenomenal year yes. for actors. Like, there are three actors in the category. And, I mean, there's there's a fourth, I would argue, that, like, Isabel Hubbard Farrell um, deserved a nomination, and, and she's going to be She was out. nominated last year. Well, she nominated last year. Oh, she was sorry. Yeah, last she was... year was amazing as well, yeah, because you had Isabel Hubbard, uh, Natalie Portman, and then, yeah, let's oh, see. Oh, for Jackie. Yeah. For Jackie, yeah, yeah. and um, Emma and Stone, Emma who won it, ultimately. Yeah. Yeah, I but, I thought I thought Jessica Chastain was good. I don't I didn't like Molly's game that much. I thought it was a bit to kind of like what well is 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 kind of um it was very sorkin and it's kind of like <laughs> yeah. unrealistic like kind of like hyper intelligent sort of this is what happens when smart people talk yeah yeah <laughs> you want to have them walking down corridors yeah. <laughs> even, even scumbags are smart it's, it's yeah. the, but, even the designated dumb characters in a sorkin script still um but i, I felt like jessica chastain knew what she was doing oh, in that movie well chastain um, has a reputation for like being she's got that sort of quality that i think eva green has except for oscar movies where mm -hmm. she's constantly the best thing about the movie that she's in 
And that if you see a movie with Jessica Chastain, there's a 90% chance that she will be the single best thing by a considerable distance in the movie. The same thing with Eva Green. Unless, unless Oscar Isaac is... Is also, yeah. is also in the yeah. movie. Yeah, in which case there's a tie. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that, so I, I mean, yeah. I, but I mean, even this year you have Lady Bird with Saoirse Ronan, which she's phenomenal in. Mm. Uh, and I, I wouldn't be grudge her with really the Oscar. It, yeah. It's quite good, but she's amazing. Mm. And there's also even, say, I, Tonya with uh, Margot Robbie. Sure. Which I, I think it's a phenomenal performance. I think it's mm -hmm. a performance that, you know, that actor's been, been there to give. But McDormand eclipses both of them, I think. And McDormand is the performance of the year, hands down, I would argue. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I think yes, she very much deserves that. I don't. I don't think that's such a new thing either for for um, McDonough movies in the sense that in 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 Bruges I thought was 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 um, was very kind of um, funny and pulpy and like the violence worked uh, quite well. But I thought the the humanity and the performances from Gleason and from Farrell made made that movie. Better than uh, elevated. Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So your your issue is that Christopher Walken couldn't find the humanity in Seven Psychopaths. <laughs> That's what I'm getting from this. What your the real problem with Seven Psychopaths with Christopher Walken? I don't want to. I don't want to say yeah. that. <laughs> you can say it, you. I I just can't. Can't. No. Moving. No. Martin. <laughs> Martin, your script. Um, so I guess the only real question I would ask. Is do you think this movie belongs in the 250 guys? Um. <laughs> do you happen to know where it is on the top 250? Um, it's currently at I think 129. Uh, 129. It's been climbing. It came in at 134. Yeah. It's been climbing gradually. Don't yeah. worry. The way that these things work is it will drop very very sharply. Yeah. La La Land came in at I think 30, joined up to 20, wow. and is now somewhere around 190. Okay. Um, so there is a very sharp, you know, rise and drop. I think like Road One. Get, well, <laughs> uh, IMDb voters with their um, uh, poster of Fight Club <laughs> and La La Land next to it. And it's like, oh, that doesn't. I'm going to take that down. It's not really kind of fitting yeah. with the with the aesthetic of the yeah. room. The Quentin Tarantino movie, the uh, yeah, the, the Martin McDonough sort of cynical violence, and then. Uh, but it is striking because you have. And we talked about this in the podcast before, where like the stereotypical IMDb voter has a certain sort of mindset and a film that they like more than they more than you know the public does, or more than the other films that they don't mm. like. And you can always tell when you look at like say the the awards fair that gets in. Mm -hmm. Last year was interesting because all five of the best director uh, nominations actually came into the the awards. Like Moonlight came mm -hmm. in for all of three hours uh, before it was promptly voted out. Hacksaw right. Ridge came in and stayed in. Hacksaw oh, Ridge, really? yeah, is. Currently the highest ranked Best Picture nominee from last year. Manchester by the Sea came in, in and gone in and really gone quickly. Well. Yeah, yeah, like that. Um, whereas La La Land came in and is gradually in a state of decline. It'll be gone. It's, it's not surprising to an extent that, that's, um, well, it does that, that Moonlight <clears throat> uh, came in and went so quickly, even though it was the Best Picture. Well, according to Oscars and according to us, I think, yeah. of last year. Mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't surprising, um, I guess, because of demographics. Mm -hmm. how yeah. It kind of went in and went out yeah, because... Sure. I guess it's a it's 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 a movie that might speak more to 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 kind of the margins of yeah. Whereas this this for example is, is another example of that because I mean this came in and came in relatively high and it will probably be in there for a little while. Mm -hmm. Whereas for example something like uh, Lady Bird uh, missed entirely, yeah. you know. Yeah. Whereas that would be a movie that would it was be very, less. Yeah. I think you were you were telling me. Um, 
Darren keeps me updated. I do, cause it's, which it's, is useful because I have no interest in it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a topic for a podcast, so. Yeah, it's it's like, to know my co-host with the, with the research. Of course, of course. Well, I wouldn't be a very good co-host if, if I knew all the things you did. But, <laughs> well, um, uh, the, there's one person who knows nothing, and there's one person who knows everything. And, 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 and then there's a guest who knows... Every, meets in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> well, because I mean, we do, we keep track of movies that come in and go out, and we always like because January, because it's Oscar season, because you got all these prestige releases. Like we will pretty much be doing movies that have just come in for the next four weeks up until mm. like Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. So like next week, I suspect we'll be covering Call Me by Your Name or mm. Vladimir Putin's uh, propaganda epic Crimea, which I'm very excited to be covering. Mm-hmm. But, we'll, <laughs> but spoilers for the Exciting. next weeks on the two fifty. Yeah. But um, it is like. It's not surprising to see like Lady Bird Miss, for example, sure. in this hit, because this is, I think, a very stereotypical like two fifty movie. And that if you had this poster next to Fight Club, it probably wouldn't be that surprising as compared yeah, to say La La Land or Moonlight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, do you guys think it belongs on the two fifty? Nah, no, not 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 really. I I I can see it falling off. I I, I don't. Again, like I, it maybe maybe having having a second watch or a bit of distance from it might help, but and uh, actually, as the movie went along, I felt myself liking it more. But um, no, it was it was like not not the kind of movie that I would um, like to see on the list. I guess. Sure. Yeah, no, the reason I asked where it was initially is I think I looked it up during the week and it was hovering in kind of the 120s, 130s. And I remembered a previous episode of this podcast had covered Heat, which was around 124. <laughs> and I was like, there's no way this film is as good as the movie Heat. <laughs> they do not belong beside each other on the wall, uh, in the IMDb list. I would put it, you know... I don't know whether I would put it in the 250. I don't think yeah. I'd rank it particularly highly if I did. Yeah, I mean, I like the film and I would be very much at the mindset that I, I, will be, I won't be mourning it when it disappears. Sure. Mm. I'm glad to have a chance to talk about it. Yes. I mean, you know, from a selfish, like, we host a podcast about this list, I'm glad to be able to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. But I, again, I wouldn't feel too bad if it had missed and I won't feel too bad when it's gone. Yeah, um, I do really like the movie though. In in terms of a movie that deals with rough, tough stuff, I I think Manchester by the Sea I felt did it like a lot better mm-hmm. and felt felt similar in some ways to this movie. But it's also about mm-hmm. dealing with grief yeah. and, yes. and channeling that grief into anger. Um, except I think Manchester by the Sea is less necessarily about anger than it is just about shutting yourself off. Mm-hmm. Whereas yeah. this is turning yourself on with anger and just going mm-hmm. like a Duracell bunny. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. It's a weird. It's a weird kind of a coping that we see in this movie, and maybe to some people it's more understandable. But I, I found it less. All right, and then finally, before we go to the spoiler zone, would this be your pick for the best film of the year? Do you think that is this going to win the best picture Oscar, and do you think it deserves to win the best picture Oscar? So, Stacey? Uh, no. Uh, like both. firmly no. Um, not in a move. Not in a year where like Dunkirk is competing. Not in a year where Get Out may or may not be competing. Uh, and there are films obviously that I've yet to see that are real award season contenders, like you know, like Lady Bird or The Shape of Water, but are getting raves and I think do are sound like they're doing kind of interesting things. So I'm like, not this year, maybe. Andrew. 
Um, I'm trying to think of the movies that are in that conversation. So like, say, Dunkirk, Get Out, um, as Stacey mentioned, stuff mm. like The Shape of Water, Lady Bird, but also even, like, if you go back, you look at stuff like, well, say, is Call, Lady me, Bird by Call me By Your Name. Is Lady Bird being talked about in terms of best picture or just in terms of best actress? Uh, it has a good shot of making the best uh, picture not list as well. Right. Florida Project uh, may make it on mm. the outskirts as well. Right. But uh, yeah, I don't know if it's if it's a very strong field. No, it's, I think it's, compared to last year, I think, yeah, I think that's, that's why this has sort of come to the front as well. I suspect this is why this has charged the front because there is no particularly strong field. I would argue mm. you have two phenomenal contenders in Get Out and Dunkirk, mm. and I think that I would be very happy if Dunkirk or Get Out won. Mm-hmm. Um, I would probably be reasonably happy if this won, although I, I don't think that this deserves to be sort of on that same sort of scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I do think that there's an issue where this award season fair is not as strong this year as it was last year. Mm. No. Um, so you don't have a clear sort of like La La Land versus Moonlight moment happening. Mm. And I think I get the sense almost this will win by default or this would this would win by default because it's the contender that exists that was released within the window in which Oscar voters have been conditioned to vote for films mm-hmm. and which has that connection, however intangible, unintentional and created purely by marketing to a cultural moment. Mm-hmm. That it's will a, justify it. It's a shame you can't have fun movies. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> really, perfect. the disaster artist should yeah, be yeah. one of the best pictures the this year. I've heard the disaster artist is terrific. Imagine if they and the nominees for best picture, the disaster artist, Thor Ragnarok. Spider Man Homecoming. Yeah, I feel like we need Girls Trip. I just saw the house. I thought the house was amazing. And it really, really bombed. Um, it did. And it, like, people who were in that movie like had like a hard time over it. People like making fun of them. Um, oh, so, but it was, it was it was great. It was hilarious. I laughed a lot, I, <laughs> and I I got to see uh, Jason Manzukis as well. What oh, is over there? He's so good. Oh, in it, he's actually. fantastic. Yeah, oh, he's doing really... something stand up. No, no, uh, oh, a, a, a live uh, live podcast, just like oh. this. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's pretty cool. Uh, Can you get him to do this age? one? <laughs> no, it was um, Wamp It Up. Um, I, I I I hope I'm not spoiling things and saying that he plays a character in in, in that <laughs> kind of Eric Eric oh, Eric, Eric Gutterball uh, <laughs> Gutterman. Um, so yeah, yeah, dead. and and Andy Daly. I, I was I was oh, I was I was I was delighted. Mm. Yeah, because I'd went over in part to see Andy Daly, went to a show where Andy Daly was supposed to perform. What he was not there, and apparently hasn't been in the swarm which is like his um improv kind of ensemble like maybe twice in the last six months he's he's been there and the um, third time <laughs> <laughs> but the um billy who 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 who's running it asked is there anyone here for the first time i put my hand up and he said oh uh, what brings you here and i just put my hand down <laughs> so I, I, I couldn't say oh i'm here to see your friend who's not here um yeah Aww. But yeah, no, it was, it, was, it, was, it was great fun. I'd recommend anyone who's... Um, in Los uh, Angeles. Yeah, to, to, to see some of the kind of UCB shows or the go to Largo or... Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. With that note then, we might segue neatly into the spoiler zone and talk a little bit of, in a bit more depth about Mark McCoy's... Sorry for that tangent. <laughs> <laughs> you say that as if it's the only tangent that this podcast has <laughs> ever gone on. Um, so in that case, we'll segue neatly into the spoiler zone. Spoiler zone. So, Stacey, 
Yes. What is Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri about? By the way, the length of that title really throws off the caves. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Um, thanks, Martin McDonough. Um, so, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri is ostensibly about three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, um, which basically are put up by a grieving mother, played by Frances McDormand, calling out the local police force for failing to make any progress in the case of her uh, raped, murdered, uh, horribly brutalized daughter. Um, And the kind of aftermath of the erection of these billboards and the effect that it has kind of on that community, both in terms of how the populace of Ebbing, Missouri react to these billboards, uh, the effect that it has on her family, um, on the police force, and... uh, But it does, I guess, take a turn, if we're moving beyond kind of the synopsis of it, um, into exploring one of the police officers in particular. uh, Dixon. Dixon, played by Sam Rockwell. Yeah, Yeah, is it Jason Dixon? I can't remember if he's a detective or an officer. I think he wants to be a detective. He wants to be a detective. But he doesn't have love. No. (laughs) And he needs love to detect stuff. Mm -hmm. And once you tell somebody that all they need to be a good detective is love... uh, that does it for them. And, it, it, you know, it's nothing to do with luck. <laughs> it's I nothing it's to, little do. to do with luck. I think the movie no, makes the point. It's entirely to do with luck. I mean, there is this moment then um, where Jason Dixon, who is an officer in the police force, receives a letter from his superior, played by Woody Harrelson, saying, you could be a really good detective, but you don't care about anything. You need to let love into your life and you'll be a better detective. And, you know, it's nothing to do with him becoming more skilled or logical or actually making any headway and finding leads in the case. Something kind of lucky happens to him. And that sort of makes him a better... T- two kind of lucky things happen to him, depending on how you gauge luck. <laughs> yeah, and he becomes a better detective. This, this is interesting. Actually. Yeah. This is one of the things about the, the discussion of the movie that I find interesting, right? Because mm-hmm. we're probably going to have to talk about the backlash at some point, right? Sure, what? yeah. The big backlash against Three Billboards um, is basically that it is a movie about the redemption of a racist police officer. Dixon Mm -hmm. is accused famously of having tortured an Mm African-American suspect while in custody. He Mm -hmm. denies this through the film, but it's a very half-hearted. The film seems to accept at point blank that he did. Mm -hmm. And... And, and yeah, Woody Harrelson is like, eh, yeah. you kind of There's did. no dramatic pause, real evidence that that happened. Yeah. Um, the film sort of glosses over it in a way that's really uncomfortable. Yeah. And it refuses to, for example, deal with the victim. And its African-American characters are all sort of marginalized at the side of the narrative, which mm-hmm. would make it really uncomfortable if it was a redemption narrative. And like... I think it's a fair criticism to say the film doesn't really have any African-American characters to speak of. It has Denise and Jerome. Jerome mm-hmm. is the guy who puts up the billboards. It has Denise who works with um, with uh, Mildred. Mildred. But it also yeah. has Abercrombie, who is the mm. uh, sergeant who was drafted in um, after Wilbury kills himself. Did you say it doesn't have any... That it doesn't have any real sort of fleshed out characters to the degree of, say, a Mildred or Wilby or mm. Willoughby or Dixon. Like the, the African-American characters in the film exist at a periphery. They're not really... I don't think they... The criticism is that they're not properly fleshed out. I think they're a bit more fleshed out than the criticism gives the film credit for, but I do think there's a... I think there's substance to the criticism, Mm. to be fair. Yeah, no, again, the sort of racist element of it is the other side of kind of Mildred's daughter having died in this horrible way so that we instantly have sympathy for her. 
if we find out at the outset, oh, this police officer is bad because he has tortured black detainees, it's a very easy way to turn us against him. Yeah. I sort of see it as two sides of the same thing, where it's like, here's an easy way to create sympathy for our ostensible protagonist, Mildred, and here's an easy way to create disdain for our ostensible antagonist, Dixon. Um, But as the film goes on, we are challenged to think about these characters and, you know, whether they are, you know, clear-cut good or bad guys. I think, though, there's a a bigger discussion to be had about Mm. the the redemption arc, because the the big Mm. criticism, the one that stings, is that the idea that Dixon is redeemed for his racism by not having to confront the racism. But Mm. I think that's a weird reading of the film that misunderstands... And we talked earlier about how mean Three Billboards mm-hmm. is. Three Billboards is an astoundingly mean film. And mm-hmm. I kind of like it for that reason. Okay. Um, I actually like the meanness. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I admire its sheer commitment. Got no soul. Yeah, and that's it. Um, and we talked about this, we talked about the Shawshank Redemption. Darren mm-hmm. has no soul. Um, Darren may be bubbly and cheerful on the outside, but he has a cold, dark center. Um, but there is an element of it, and it's what I really respond to, which is the sense that you mentioned there, like, Dixon is told that he needs to detect using love and mm-hmm. it ends up being luck. And he's sitting down at a bar and he hears this story about this guy who claims to have like, you know, raped a woman while she was dying and burnt her alive, which is very similar to the case of, of Mildred's daughter. Um, but, and, and then it turns out that, you know, he sort of, he investigates this, he brings, he gets evidence under his skin, he gets beaten up. Mm. And like, it looks for a little while, like this is going to be a redemption narrative for the character. It mm-hmm. looks like in a lesser movie, he would find the guy through sheer luck and mm-hmm. through taking that beating and by gathering that evidence, by being an actual detective, he would earn his redemption. Mm-hmm. What I like about Three Billboards is it sets all that up and then completely undercuts it. It's like, actually, mm-hmm. no, this isn't the guy. Mm-hmm. The dramatic odds of this happening and you finding the guy boasting in a bar are ridiculous and mm-hmm. absurd and would only happen in a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. So, you know, why would you even believe that this is remotely possible? Mm-hmm. And then at the end, after that happens, after, you know, not only does Dixon have the hope that he might become a detective, he might become a good investigator, and after he goes and he tells Mildred, we might have found your guy. And Mildred's like, I actually have hope for the first time since she died. I actually have hope that I'm mm-hmm. I may get closure, I may get reconciliation, I may get something that brings an end to the grief and suffering inside myself. The movie goes, no, that's not how the real world works, that's not how this thing happens. And the movie ends then with like Dixon and Mildred going off to murder this mm-hmm. guy in an act of vigilante violence. Now, admittedly, the guy is a rapist. He did, as, as you know, as, as Dixon points out, he's not your rapist, but he is a rapist. And like, it's hard to feel particularly sorry about the idea of vigilante violence, mm-hmm. two people going to Idaho and murdering a guy who mm-hmm. boasts about burning a woman alive while raping her. But at the same time, it feels like that's not a redemption narrative. That's a story of two people who had hope for an instinct, lost it, mm-hmm. And then fell back into the patterns of like violence and anger and acting out and like causing carnage and engaging in sort of this destruction that, mm-hmm. that I feel feel like reading it as a redemption narrative is a very easy and trite reading of the film, I think, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that was a long ramble. I feel uh, like McDonough generally normalizes racism in, in his movies, which, which is... That act of, of normalizing it is... A, a, I kind of have a problem with that. I, I don't have a problem with portraying uh, racist characters because I feel like... Too many of us live in a in a, in in a bubble where um, racist people don't seem to exist. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Or um, I think it's important to por- portray that mm-hmm. in 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 movies because, like, we we live in a far more 
uh, racist world that we then we had sometimes realize mm. yeah although i don't think the film really shows us that with any kind of nuance and as i said before i wouldn't necessarily expect that from mcdonough but yeah you know we hear early on dixon you know is said to have tortured a black suspect in custody and you know while some people see his attempt to solve the murder of mildred's daughter later in the film as a way to kind of redeem himself i don't think he ever redeems himself from the no. racism but then also i don't think we see any further evidence that he is a horrible racist person i mean that's a terribly racist act and well, there's a moment where he throws red out the window and he says, see, I, hate, I got issues with white people too. Yeah. Like, there's a sense that, like, McDonough is, and I think you're right that he's trivializing mm. racism because he seems mm. to be saying, like, Dixon's problem isn't that he's racist. Mm. Dixon's problem is just that he's angry at everybody and this he happened to direct his anger at a black person this one time. Mm. It sort of glosses over the whole, like, institutional aspect of racism and the fact that yes. it exists. And the fact that Denise's experience of, like, being hauled into custody mm. is inherently different from Mildred's of sitting with mm. Willoughby across the table. And that, are, that point I found just really strange to throw in it almost seems as if as I said making him racist is kind of a cheap way to turn us against him they don't really interrogate what it means for him to be a part of this systemic racist system you know this guy from what we see on screen he's not more racist than any of the other characters in the film we just hear about him having tortured a black suspect and that's yeah. you know why we're supposed to think oh this is a racist police officer and there is the point as you say where he arrests denise and puts her in prison and refuses her bail because she has these kind of previous convictions um but i think that speaks more to kind of as i said this kind of systemic racism yeah. like this character from what we see on screen as opposed to what we're told about him you know he's it's not he's not really uh he's not a kind of useful conduit for this theme yeah and I, I feel like there's an element of, like, mm. this is being grafted on because of that whole attempt to make the movie socially Because relevant. it's topical, yeah, as opposed to it being something he really wants to interrogate. And that, mm. I feel I, like, yeah. is a weak way to serve a very difficult theme. I will say, though, like, mm. I, in terms of the African-American characters, one of the mm. things I found interesting on rewatching it is mm. that there's a difference in the way that certain characters respond to Mildred's anger. Mm -hmm. So, like... The white characters, you know, it, it's mostly white people in the town. It's the priest, it's the fat dentist who reject Mildred's anger at the mm -hmm. time, who find her disturbance of social norms to be terrifying and to be, mm. to be punished. And, like, even the characters who are vaguely sympathetic to Mildred's predicament, so, for example, Willby, mm. who, who seems to understand and doesn't want to go with war to war with her and doesn't mm -hmm. want, like, the Mildred Hayes case opened. And even, say, Red, Red Wel you know, Red Welby, who mm. basically, you know, he gives her the billboards initially. And he's, you know, you really want to mess with the Ebbing Police Force, mm. kind of, you know, and he's sympathetic to that. But even he has limits because he basically... Um, you know, once he finds out that Wilby's dying, he tries to find a loophole in the contract to get the billboards taken down because, you know, he, he sees this as a disruption that's unfair. And again, mm -hmm. even Wilby himself is willing to tie Mildred up in court to get those billboards mm -hmm. taken down as, as much sympathy as he has. Mm -hmm. Whereas in contrast, if you look at the African-American characters in the film, they are entirely supportive of Mildred's attempt to basically take down the system. Sure. Like to the point where, um, you know, Denise obviously is like, you put up those billboards to mess with the cops yet. Mm -hmm. um, Jerome is the guy who shows up mm -hmm. with the billboards, like ready to put them back up, you mm -hmm. know, which is stuff that Red, Red in theory could have done that, but he wouldn't think to do that mm -hmm. because he's not particularly engaged with that. Even well, he's Abercrombie. in the hospital at that point. He might be, but still. <laughs> yeah. um, even Abercrombie. Doesn't excuse him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I mean, Dixon is out of hospital at that point. He was burnt on his face. But I mean, even stuff like, say, Abercrombie, who is the mm -hmm. chief of police who's drafted in after, um, after Willoughby commits suicide. Mm -hmm. 
he very clearly like has a soft spot for Mildred that he never articulates. So, for example, like when the billboards are burnt down, he makes a point to say, we're not all the enemy, which is very different from Willoughby showing up and saying, take down those billboards, mm-hmm. they're not fair. And even when it's very clear that she's burnt down the police station mm-hmm. and like Dixon, who is a moron, mm-hmm. is like, there's only one person in here who could possibly have burnt down this, you know, and it's you. Mm-hmm. Like, in contrast, Abercrombie's kind of like, well, station got burnt down, I can... You know, I'm not really going to press this really weak alibi that you have <laughs> or the fact that you have means, motive and opportunity. We'll just let this slide on mm. the lightest possible way. Which is bizarre when it's a movie about accountability. Yeah. And I feel like you were going to say something about the way the film deals with race. Well, we can yeah. To I, that. I, I, yeah, I, I think Mac, Mac, McDonough does that in, in his movies too. He uses... Uh, race as a way to make you feel a certain way about a character rather than in any kind of um, interesting exploration mm. of it. Um, like in In Bruges, there's, there's, um, and he, 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 he likes having little people in his movie as well. Well, we'll talk about that in a moment. Yeah, I mean, but, the, reason, but, the reason that there's a little person in this movie is because the role that he wrote, he wrote in Bruges was for was, Peter Dinklage. Was for yeah. Peter Dinklage. Peter Dinklage couldn't do it and he wanted to work with him again, so he wrote the character uh, in here. But yeah, in 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 that movie, you have this you have this very uh, uh, racist, racist yeah. uh, character set up who who believes there's going to be a race war, and I I guess the the whole reason for that is so that when he's killed later on, you're okay with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's 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 not it's not exploring um, racism in in any interesting way, but using it to to make thing. you feel a sort of way about 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 the character, which which is. Which doesn't really um, um, expose, uh, I guess, racism in, in in any useful way. That's mm-hmm. that's going to uh, make, make people think or confront um, yeah. prejudice. Yeah. Mm. But you were saying about accountability, Stacey. Yeah, this film is very inconsistent in terms of who it thinks should be held accountable and what for. You know, the whole thing is spurred by a lack of accountability for a really monstrous crime. And yet Mildred herself, uh, you know, goes and attacks this dentist because he's complained about the billboard. And they just kind of shrug it off. They kind of give her a pass for it. It's like, well, you're you're the one who is like, oh, the police aren't doing enough to hold violent people accountable. (laughs) And then... This happens. Yeah, I don't know how she gets away with that because he presses charges. She's assaulted him with a drill, Um, and and he he opened his mouth. Like, mm. that's all he did. He was like, I don't think you should. To be fair, he (laughs) was threatening to remove her teeth without Novocaine. Like, there was a point where he was like, "That's gonna have to match." Like, do I need maybe some painkiller? And he's like, "Okay." Give that a minute, and then 30 seconds later, he's like, oh, by the way, here comes the drill. I feel like when a man is bearing down on you with a drill, saying, oh, by the way, a lot of us don't mm. like what you're doing with that Chief Willoughby thing, I can, I would consider that to be a threat. It's 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 still a song. Oh, it's a song. It's kind of like, let her go. It seems like the police have a, a, a weird uh, kind of... Um, amount of discretionary powers when it comes to these things mm. it's like this person with two joints it's like lock her up for the rest of her <laughs> life but this, this woman who's who's just uh, assaulted a dentist and the dentist is is pressing charges 
and she has caused serious bodily harm is like oh yeah like mm-hmm. does that ever come up again well i mean no i don't know no, no not particularly <laughs> but i think to be fair i think that's actually a point mcdonough's trying to make though like mm-hmm. one of the things and this is where i think the messaging gets lost in like the hype and the award season there and like the branding and the pr aspect of it mm-hmm. right this sort of people try to latch this on to say the Me Too movement or whatever, or like righteous anger that's felt towards authority. Mm-hmm. And the movie, to be fair, does invite that as as you pointed out by making the act of violence at the start a, a sexual act, mm-hmm. and by making um, Dixon a racist police officer. So I mean, it's not as if this came out of nowhere, and it's not as if it's unreasonable to hold this expectation mm-hmm. of the film. But there's a sense that like it's a movie where the central thesis, which is articulated by Penelope, the um, 19-year-old mm-hmm. uh, person who works with horses for the disabled, all this anger only begets greater anger. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense, and it, it plays out repeatedly through the film, through this imagery of fire. Yes. There's a sense that when you release anger, when you vent anger, when anger is a response to being wronged or a response to grief, it becomes all-consuming and it moves in directions that you can't control. So, for example, Mildred's... And all of the anger in the film is misdirected. Mildred yes. Hayes is... She's obviously, like, imaginary. She would be angry at the person who murdered her child, but that person's not available to her. So she directs that anger at Willoughby, who is, you know, dying of cancer. You know, Dixon, after Willoughby dies... Like, after he commits suicide, he doesn't direct his anger, you know, at Willoughby, who committed suicide himself, or even, you know, at Hayes, who, you know, who put up the billboards, you know, which were not responsible at all, as Willoughby outlines. He grabs the nearest person to him. He walks across the street, mm-hmm. and he smashes up... That was up. crazy, because as he well, had yeah. done nothing. Um, yeah, that's it, exactly. But <laughs> that's what it's about, it's about misdirected anger. Mm. In the same way that there's a sense that um, the town itself is angry at Mildred for disrupting their, their lives and their routine. Mm. And even, like, her ex husband charlie burning down the billboards Mm. where he has no real motivation like he's no real sort of cause to be angry with her because he's he's probably more um mildred has uh, i guess caused her uh son um a lot of kind of grief um through through, throughout this whole thing but it's probably also caused her ex-husband um well, to be fair, he's a wife beater. I think like my, my yeah. sympathy is extremely limited no. for Charlie. I mean, to be but clear. but that, that again, that's Martin McDonough using that to kind of make you feel a certain way about. I don't know. I thought there was something very effective in the scene where he upends the table and the son immediately grabs horrible. the knife. Mm-hmm. But the son immediately like, grabs the knife. There's a sense that like this is something that everybody's aware of. Like oh, that's just son's to make me- you feel worse about the world. What? Like the 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 the, the um, it's it's such an ugly universe that they're um in in well, inhabiting. That's that, that's what that's what the point of the movie is because there's a movie scene where Mildred talks to the deer and she's like you know you know you're not trying to tell me get me to believe in reincarnation mm. you're not oh. trying to tell me that the world is meaningless and there is no god and there's there no is, justice yeah there's there's no god and there's nothing and yeah and, and that that was that, that was that wasn't very likely um, oh, kind of delivered whatsoever um and it, it just made made me dislike this movie more. There's a lot of dramatic irony and moments like that that are like quite on the nose oh, yeah. and yeah. like that actually were so unsubtle that I enjoyed the movie less for them. So like the appearance of the deer, even though she's like, oh, I know what you're doing. And this, <laughs> this, Invisible God. Yeah, yeah I know what you're up to and I'm not buying it. But like even... Um, in the letter from Willoughby where he's like, oh, I don't know, maybe someone in a bar will talk about some horrible <laughs> thing they've done and you'll catch them that way. And 
later on someone in a bar is talking about some horrible thing. I was just I, like, this is so I but I, I lazy. Like the, but I like the fact that that laziness sort of boomerangs back around because like, it looks like it, it sets you up it's so that you expect the movie to go in a particular direction. Mm-hmm. And, like, and to be honest, it relies an even bigger contrivance is the fact mm. that you know it just so happens that there's a guy talking about another crime where a woman mm. was burnt alive and sexually assaulted. And he just happened to be passing through at this time yeah. and sort of went to this bar and then got overheard. Somehow that's less likely well, than every the town, are... Every town in Martin like that. <laughs> has, has someone has like that in a bar. Some, yeah, somebody who is like the only way to rape somebody is to also kill them and set them on fire. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but I do feel like the movie sort of that dramatic irony works better for me because it, it's sort of subverted in okay, that it yeah. looks like the film is going to impose meaning on it in a very cheap and sort mm. of trite way and then doesn't. Mm. Like in that, like it looks like Mildred might get closure and then she doesn't mm-hmm. because that's how the, the real world works. Yeah. That? Like I actually really like the portrayal of grief in this film as something tied to anger. Mm-hmm. As you get even like little moments where Mildred is looking at the window at say like uh, Red and Pam. Mm. And them sort of holding hands and flirting. Or even like mm. Denise and Jerome at the bar where they're sort of getting on. There's a sense of like people who are getting on with their lives while Mildred is being consumed by this anger and this mm-hmm. rage and can't look past it. And I, I really, that sort of landed with me. That sort of like mm. felt like an emotionally genuine response where you have this anger and this grief inside yourself. And your first response is to just stare out angrily at the world and look at people who are, you know, who are moving on and living their lives and able to get past grief that you mm-hmm. can't. I thought that was very genuine. I would like to go back a bit to how much I enjoyed how how Sam Rockwell the whole um, him like 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 the the what what he brings to a movie where he does so well is the kind of ham uh, handed sort of and, and like moments of attempted heroics that <laughs> yeah. just kind of like uh, where he seems to. Just always uh, fall flat in his face. Well, yeah. well, there's a bit where even when he's standing up to challenge Mildred Hayes after he's arrested Denise, mm. and he's standing up and he's trying to look imposing, but his baton has got stuck in his chair. Yeah. There's lots of wonderful <laughs> little moments like that. There's yeah, and he, he there there's kind of um, the whole like a, a fight with the um, with the uh, suspect mm. where where it turns out that. That and all of that was for nothing. Yeah. Because, yeah. yeah. That, that, I feel like Sam Rockwell is very good at that. I'm sort of mm. capturing that yeah. sense of like. I really like a, Sam Rockwell. I, I think yeah. he's very good in this as yeah. well. And I think he's very good in general. Like he, we've been watching him since The Lawn Dogs in what, 1997. Mm. And it's sort of, he's one of those actors. I've, I think I've been watching him since before that. I think I've been watching him since Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, yeah, he's two. in that. Uh, Secrets of, Secret of the Ooze. Was he a drug dealer or something? What was he? He was, was part of a child gang. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and it came from this. I like the fact yeah. that like, yeah, your outcome from child actor is either Shia LaBeouf or mm. Sam Rockwell. Well. Yeah, yeah. I think um, uh, Sh- Sh- Shredder was some kind of like Fagin character in that movie. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. He's got this gang uh, of you, Pied Piper. Yeah. Mm. I, have, I don't think I've seen Secret of the Ooze. I saw the one where they went back to Japan. I think that was the third one, right? That might have been the third one. Yeah. People forget that there was more than uh, some people only think that there was one. There was there was like two and then three and possibly more. Yeah, yeah. And then and they're having a reboot now. Jacks. Well, they, they, well, they had several reboots. Like they had the the god awful what's his name, uh, Michael Bay ones. Oh yeah, yeah. Those were, are going now, aren't they? Yeah, and yeah. They're, they're awful. They are really awful. Yeah, really, really awful. Well, they they I have feel like they haven't got Shredder as Fagin at all. No, 
They they have um, all the turtles are on that like Sochi Olympics um, performance enhancing drug stuff. They're really roided up. Big like, veins. Like, that's that's your issue with the Teenage Ninja Turtle reboot. Is the turtles are veiny. It's not the fact that they're just nonsense and terrible movies of themselves. Sitting there going, I could be on board with this if the turtles were just a little less veiny. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I you'd you'd like to think that. Um, that uh, Michael Bay might have um, some good movies ahead of him. That maybe this this is a very long period <laughs> in in the middle it's of Michael very, Bay's career where they're no longer out. enjoyable, mm-hmm. um, and it, and and then he sometimes to... somehow gets out of that. Like I think there's early Michael Bay movies that 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 people still enjoy, like The Rock, mm. for example, yeah, the Rock. or even The Island. I, I really yeah. like The Island. Glass or plastic. Yeah. <laughs> <But> <laughs> those little little parcel balls <laughs> that you put in your washing machine—they're fun <laughs> and potentially dangerous to yeah. San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, there's there's a there's a the uh, fad at the moment for g- eating kids them. kids yes. eating uh, them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, don't eat those balls. Yeah, to rock. be absolutely clear, especially um, if they're the glass ones. Um, thank you very much. I'll not digest that. But back to back to sorry. <laughs> Though Sam Raimi's <coughs> character does own a turtle, we don't discover if it's a oh, te- yeah. if it's mutant right. or a teenager. Mm. But um, I wonder if that was an intentional nod. Oh, absolutely! Yeah. <laughs> I like the idea of Mark McDonough sitting down. That's and why he chose him for Seven Psychopaths. It's, it's like, like I've I've seen you. You know I've done other movies. So. <laughs> it's like I've always wanted to work with the kid from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles too. But I do feel like yeah, you're right when you say that this is a performance-driven movie because Rockwell. It's amazing. Like, McDormand is a force of nature mm. in the film, but Rockwell... And Rockwell is always good. Like, Rockwell mm. is... I, mm. Like, Rockwell has made bad movies, but I don't feel like he's ever been bad. I don't feel like he's ever, like, phoned it in or done something awful. Keep in mind, I haven't mm. seen him as, like, you know, urchin in, in Teenage <laughs> But I feel like even a lot of the humanity that people ascribe to Dixon, mm-hmm. um, a lot of the redemption arc that people seem to be responding to with the character of Dixon, I think is rooted in Rockwell's performance because what happens with the film is it's structured so that you spend more time with Dixon in the second half when Willoughby commits suicide. Because Willoughby committing suicide is an act that completely breaks... Willoughby, sorry. Uh, Sorry, It's Red Willoughby and it's Chief Willoughby, right? That's the two between... Sorry, I I thought you said we'll we'll be committing suicide. It's like after the also Stacey brought donuts I like yeah. that. this is one of the great things about having guests yeah. um, but I do feel like um, the suicide of Chief Willoughby actually mm. is one of the things that I think maybe fractures the matter because we alluded to this mm. when we were talking about at the start some of the things when I was watching it the first time Willoughby's suicide threw me off what I thought the movie was going to be yeah. uh, which was going to be you know sort of Mildred Hayes versus the Ebbing Police Department and then it becomes like the, the suicide sort of balloons and explodes up and it becomes like a catalyst for Dixon getting fired, which becomes like a catalyst for Dixon actually becoming a detective and then sort of leads to all this other stuff, which is when you're watching the movie the first time, it feels chaotic and random. Mm-hmm. And it sort of feels like when McDonough was saying when he was writing it, like, I don't write with an ending in mind. It's like, OK, I'm 30 pages in. Uh, I've got nothing to do. Chief commits suicide. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that will give me enough that will get me to the end. Mm-hmm. But watching it again, I, I think it works relatively well as an inciting incident. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I was th- I was thinking um, as, as he was killing himself, because there was a little note on, on the front of, the of, of his hood. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking, well, that note's going to get covered in blood. 
uh, horrendously impractical. Yeah, he did and not of, think this. And through. of course it did, but but for um, some somehow it worked anyway. Um, they, yeah, the, the, the hood wasn't uh, lifted until the police arrived. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, but do what? What do you think about that twist? Just in terms of storytelling, in terms of narrative, like do you think that it, it breaks the movie? Like you, like you both described the movie as sort of like disjointed and sort of a bit all over the place, like. Was the suicide part of that? Like, was the suicide something that broke the movie? Was the suicide something that maybe wasn't thought through or didn't have the impact that it should have? I get, or I, did it work in context for you guys? Because it clicked on me for on rewatch, mm-hmm. but you guys have both only seen it once, so mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious what your reaction was. Again, it was some something uh, where I, I'm being very hard on McDonald, but it's kind of like the way I felt about the movie. It, it seemed to it, it, no, normalize that like act or to 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 to, to oh the heroism yeah to, the, to, the heroine, yeah, to it gave it a sort of a nobility which mm. i thought was very uh, disturbing it is yeah. for sure it yeah. is quite um, so i don't know that i mean that's the thing i'm not actually sure how we're supposed to read uh will it be is he meant to be because there's a point in the film where it seems like he's the heroic and virtuous character because he he's mm-hmm. the guy who writes what what certain critics i think the salt lake tribune described it as the ethical will where he basically mm-hmm. writes these letters that serve as like profound philosophical statements for the characters which consists of saying don't be angry um <laughs> which which again is reiterated by penelope later on in the movie where she's like all this anger only begets greater anger mm-hmm. um but I, I wonder like watching it a couple of times i'm wondering is willoughby just as bad because Willoughby has enabled and abetted Dixon's racism and am I being too generous to McDonough when I when I wonder if Willoughby's supposed to be an ambiguous character or do you think that he we're meant to take him at face value and think that he's perhaps the most sane of the three lead characters because um, I mean that that changes the way that I that's the difficulty with suicide because if mm. we're supposed to treat him as the most sane of the three characters the suicide sequence is is horrible it, mm. it's it's really really awkward and very difficult to contextualize and it feels as andrew pointed out reckless and thoughtless and you know sort of like crass Mm. whereas if the character is maybe meant to be a bit more ambiguous if we're meant to see like his enabling and excusing of like dixon's violence as compared to like abercrombie coming in and basically saying get the hell out of this Mm -hmm. office which is what somebody should have said dixon a long time ago so do you think I'm, i'm giving mcdonough too much credit in like looking at willoughby as a character who's meant to be not problematic but flawed mm-hmm. or or do you think that like the surface reading of willoughby as the only sane man in ebbing is is intentional or is what for me through? it's uh more of the sort of lazy storytelling that like i come back to this idea that we're told something very dramatic that influences how we see mildred we're told something very dramatic that influences how we see dixon and we're told something very dramatic that influences how we see willoughby which is he's a family man and he's dying of cancer so you know, even though his police department has not managed to make any headway in the case, and as it appears, you know, there are no leads, they have investigated and they've nowhere really to go. Um, I feel like there are a lot of things we're told in this movie that are maybe supposed to have us, you know, rethink, you know, oh, Willoughby, you know, he's actually, he's a pretty decent man and he's he's trying to do his job, but uh, there are all of these complicating factors, including the fact that he's he is dying and... Again, the fact that we're told that so many of the residents of Ebbing have taken issue with the billboards because of his kind of health, his poor health, um, I feel like kind of ties into that. Uh, And additionally to this, we have, you know, multiple scenes of him with his wife and his family. I think the film wants us to think a little more kindly on Willoughby than maybe I do. 
Yeah. And I think my ideas about my feelings towards him are really thrown by that suicide. Um, by sort of how abruptly it happens, by sort of how radically it changes our expectations of what the rest of the film was going to be about or is going to be about. Uh, it sends things, as you say, it is an inciting incident. It sends things in a completely different direction. Um, and yeah, it leaves me unsure how to feel about his character. There's a lot presented to us. Um, some of it is, to be fair, shown on screen, um, but a lot of it is just kind of things we're told or very easy script writing where it's like, you are a good family man and you are in ill health and we love you so much. Um, the cornerstone of the community. Pillar yeah, of the community. Pillar community, good man. Whereas, as you say, there are problematic qualities to him in that he has never really disciplined Dixon or almost turns a blind eye to this behavior of yeah. him having tortured detainees. Yeah, because there's no... Real, real evidence that it ever <laughs> happened, yeah. I kind of wanted to know if the whole kind of um, conversation that Willoughby and his wife have before he goes out to shoot himself, if, th- if that's meant to be charming. His cock and her... A shooting horses. Big, this is a family <laughs> um, show that we're doing. So, yeah, the, the, there's... there's there's I feel like some it's just a very... family show that we're doing. I feel like you've misread the film as a whole. Like, <laughs> the discretion shot where they go off and have sex and the camera doesn't show them having sex doesn't make it a PG-13 movie. But then they movie. talk loads about it. Yeah. 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 And but it's, it's, can you tell like... that done as a playwright? <laughs> yeah, it's... Um, yeah, are, are, we, are we meant to find that cute? I, I was wondering. I, how did that, how did that, that come cute. across? I, I found that a little cute, but I'm very easily manipulated. How, how much... Further, do you think it could have went before it was no longer cute? I feel like it, it went exactly to the line. I feel like, I feel yeah. like the Oscar Wilde dick joke is the mm. moment at which it's like, okay, the, I feel like that's yeah. just far enough for mm. me. I feel like you're you're on the edge of the, the territory, looking out into the wilderness at that point. Right, mm. right, right. I, I take it the so moment. I leave that, it there. Yeah. No, no now fluids. go commit suicide. I think we're all, yeah. yeah. Now go commit suicide, okay. and we're all set. Mm. Um, write a charming letter um, and make sure that you kiss your kids goodbye on the way out. Yeah. That sort of stuff. No, I, I, I didn't mind the that sort of conversation. I thought it was thought it was quite earned in terms of it felt very real. And the same thing mm. with the interactions with the with the kids, with Mildred Hayes' kids. And I mean, we'll talk about this because there's a very... You enjoyed it, you sick twist. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, even the stuff like when she's flicking cereal on, on you know, sort of her son's head, for example. Mm. Um, that sort of stuff. Or the, the bit where they have the exchange of dialogue, there'll be no more C-words in this house, like, what are you moving out? And the awkward <laughs> one where the so two funny. women just stare mm. at him. Um, and I feel like, interestingly enough, right, we talk about how manipulative McDonough is. And it, like, the most manipulative movie is seen in the movie is that flashback sequence with the daughter. Mm-hmm. Where, yeah. yes, which is the moment where, you know, they have the big mm. argument whether or not she can take the car. Mildred says no. They have this fight. And she's like, okay, well, I'll go off and I hope I get raped. And then Mildred, no, that's not yeah. enough. Mildred has to follow her out and yell, well, I hope you get raped too. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is it's a transparently manipulative moment. But I've seen the movie three times with audiences. Um, I've seen it twice in a screener. And it, it's a moment that plays very differently when you are watching it yourself and you're aware of how manipulative it is mm-hmm. versus when you're with an audience and you, you're you in a room full of people yeah. who like literally gasp. I think gasp. we were possibly at the same screening on Monday. The, yeah. Uh, the screening in, in Rough Minds. In Rough Minds. Yeah. And the moment that that lands, it's mm. like the biggest moment in this film where yeah. everybody in the audience just takes in a breath. Mm. And it's exhilarating to watch because you're aware 
of how transparent and cynical and manipulative mm-hmm. it is in the moment. Mm-hmm. But you also get to admire how it lands. And it, it's there's this weird dissonance between it being hackneyed mm-hmm. and like cheap and tawdry mm-hmm. and it being incredibly effective. Yeah. That's really well, strange. Must speak to a lot of people whose mothers would talk to them that way. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this is a normal thing for two people to say to one another. Um, I guess that's it. You're thinking of it in the context of, well, my mother would never say this to me. I would never say this to my mother. Yeah, so it's striking dramatic. My mother never said that to me. To be clear. I'm so glad. I feel like like we've opened up. To her credit. (laughs) And to mine as well. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, no, it's just interesting because the moments that you think are are cheap and and are, like, let's let's be honest, they are cheap and tawdry. I put that in with the lazy screenwriting. Oh no, that that is the laziest. That is the very lazy. It's very much manipulative. It's like if you sat down a first year student studying writing. Like, what you want a moment on which you want to end this flashback Mm -hmm. that will have the audience reeling. Mm -hmm. This is the moment that you choose to do it. Mm -hmm. But I'm at the same time, as much as I am like shocked at the like sheer torturiness of it, the effectiveness of it is remarkable. It works. When 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 you're with a crowd. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of interesting because it's like watching a horror movie. When Mm -hmm. you watch a horror movie with a crowd, when you watch a horror movie by yourself, you deconstruct, you pick it apart, you understand Mm -hmm. like the beats and the rhythms that you're familiar with when you're watching a, a movie. But... One of the reasons why I like, if I'm reviewing a horror film, to watch it with a crowd uh, is in part because I have no feelings and I'm thus unable to judge them <laughs> myself, as we've established in this it's podcast. yourself and Jay have seen too many movies. Yeah. You, you know everything that's going to happen, so you can't be surprised and can't mm. feel. Yeah, Nothing can't frightens feel. you anymore. Yeah. 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 Whereas experiencing it vicariously with an audience it's is like, something oh, else entirely. This is just one of those hero narrative movies. This is a hero narrative movie where they're going to... Um... Oh, this is Blade Runner, where myself and Jay basically mm. deconstructed it several degrees, where I was still mildly surprised at how it turned out because mm. it, it subverted its subversion. Whereas yeah. Jay was three steps ahead. Like, <laughs> I've already seen it subverting its subversion of its right. subversion. And Jay was like, yep, this is just another day at the cinema for me. Um, but I do, I do feel like there's an element of that at play in what, saying watch horror movies. Like if I'm reviewing a horror movie, I like to go and see it with a crowd and see how it plays. Mm. Um, and part of that's maybe... It's a comedy you want, yeah, you want to be, watch it with. But I, I, I think a comedy is very strong if you're watching on a flight like, and you're the only one who can hear it and you're <laughs> laughing. Yeah. yeah, It's also very unsettling for everybody else around you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think mm-hmm. like I'm sometimes the only person. I think people who we, we've had on the podcast before have complained how much I laughed during movies. I didn't, <laughs> la- I, did, I didn't laugh very much during this movie, I don't think. No, well, to be, to be fair, it's... And this is interesting, because as far as, like, Golden Globes... You know, it had its moments. Like, well, it's they're, very, they're, they're very kind of Sam Rockwell, sort of. Yeah, it's, it's a very bleak and very dark comedy. Like, it, yeah. it, it is... It's in, like, when we saw it, we saw it at a mystery screening that was pitched mm. as a comedy drama. Mm. And I think that's a reasonable discussion. It's, and it's very telling, I think, in some respects. And we want to talk about, like the racial politics of the movie, but we also want to talk about like the racial politics how the movie's been received, mm. that Get Out was categorised as a comedy film yes. for the Golden Globes. And I would argue that's reasonably fair in terms of you can make it like, say, like Doctor Strangelove is a comedy film, perhaps. It's a mm. satire. It's, you know, it's like, it's very much like Stepford Wives or whatever. Mm. But if you're doing that and you're making that argument, then how the hell is this a straight drama film? Because this, yeah. is, this is just as, as cynical and just as, you know, it has these bleak, black, comedic moments. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like there are moments when I chuckle laughing when I sort of watched it 
Um, that maybe again speak to the dark blackness in my soul. It's certainly, uh, certainly not as funny as in Bruges. I, um, no. I thought in Bruges was a lot funnier. But um, you mentioned Get Out There. I think I've said in the podcast before that, that I had a problem that it was, it was kind of like a horror comedy sort of satire and that it didn't work for me as a horror or as a comedy. Mm. Which it was 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 kind of like pro, pro, pro problems that I had for it. I think it worked as a satire because it made you kind of think about casual racism and um, wokeness and so on and so forth. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just just in terms of it as a comedy, I did find myself thinking about why I was laughing at certain lines. Yeah. Like I think the thing I laughed the most at was uh, Penelope said baguettes, uh, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. And then I was like, wait, but why is that so funny? Yeah. And I was like, well, it's because they spent the whole movie kind of hating on this girl. Yeah. Like yeah. she's they're actually horrible to her. She's oh, yeah. a yeah. really sweet girl and they're really mean to her. This is um Mildred's ex-husband's new girlfriend who was 19 and works with farm animals. Works at the zoo and then works, works the and, and horses with, for disabled with children who have disabilities. Like which is mm-hmm. a very noble and sincere calling. Yeah, absolutely clear. Like, like somebody she's a really nice during, lady. Yeah, mm-hmm. she's a really nice lady <laughs> doing a very specific yeah. function. Mm-hmm. Is, and, there, uh, is there something quite kind of misogynist? about we're like all supposed to hate this girl because she's a sexy 19 year old I I with regards to Penelope though right here's the thing and this is one of the things that I I quite like about the movie is that Mm. repeatedly through the film what happens is that older characters um, like for example um, Dixon like for example Mildred they hold on to and they harbor their anger and their resentment mm. and their rage and their grief. They let their grief turn into anger and they let that anger loose on everybody else. Mm. One of the things I quite like about it, and one of the things that while it is a very nihilistic movie in some respects, and that it's a movie about how the world doesn't give you easy answers or explanations, even when you think you deserve them. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I think is possibly vaguely optimistic or humanist about it is that the characters who confront these, the characters who like offer characters like Mildred and Dixon, like a chance at redemption, mm. like an opportunity to move past their grief. We make the point that like grief is, you know, the anger after grief is like, it has to be a transitory state mm-hmm. are younger characters. So yeah. for example, it is Penelope who mm-hmm. has the epiphany of all this anger only begets greater anger, which mm-hmm. is something that all of the adult characters, all the older characters in the film could do well to learn. And I think the script is very much on Penelope's side there, even if she just learned that in a book about polio. And I do feel the portrayal of her as somebody who doesn't understand the difference between polo and polio is problematic and is Mm. mean Mm. and whatever. But I do think the film makes a point. And the same thing with Red Welby. Mm. Like when Dixon gets his face burned off and when he goes to hospital and he meets Red there and he says, I'm sorry for burning you alive. And when Welby has this moment, like this guy who threw him out a window (laughs) and beat him and left him horribly scarred, possibly unable to walk properly for the rest of his life Mm. with, with bruises and scars and stuff. And Welby still finds it within him to forgive Dixon for this. Mm. He still finds it within him to make him orange juice and to give him a straw so that he can drink through it without like hurting himself even more. Like I feel mm. like one of the th- one of the points the movie makes, and perhaps it's most optimistic and most humanist point, mm. is the idea that young people understand the need for forgiveness and the need to move on and to get past anger in a way that older people don't. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's it's a strange kind of a thing, though, because it, it feels like that Penelope's kind of innocence comes from a place of naivety or mm-hmm. stupidity almost, that the movie still takes her point of view on board 
for the sake of structure, I suppose. Oh, yeah? Of the of, okay. of, of 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 the movie. Be, 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 because you feel like Madonna has to offer an out that the characters don't yeah. take, so they might be damned. Is it? Yeah, and even even in the, in the f- f- final kind of uh, scene of 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 the movie, where I had to stop the movie and yes. use the, use the restroom, much like your name, restroom. Yeah. What am I saying? <laughs> <laughs> the little and, boys room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is also another mean spirited gag from McDonald's. Yes, oh, that's a very mean spirited gag. And mm. I, I remember that's one of the ones where that audience is laughed at. That I remember feeling a little bit. Yeah, what's that? The, the the moment where Peter Dinklage says he needs to go off and use the little boys room when I went to see it with an audience there was laughter yeah there, which everybody I laughed really and I was like Ugh. yeah I found oh he didn't even register with me yeah um yeah, but the 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 and the, the very very last scene where they're like, oh, do you, do you still want to kill this guy? And it's like, I don't know. Yeah, there yeah. has to be an out of some kind. Yeah. It's like these characters aren't completely damned. It almost. And maybe it was McDonough's intention. It almost feels like studio intervention from the thirties or something, where it's like you cannot send these two people off to murder some guy. Hey, you have so. to have a scene. Yeah, yeah. You have to have a scene where they're like, maybe we won't. But what if the guy's a rapist who burns people alive while raping them? It's like you still gotta leave it out. Still, yeah. Yeah, like it seemed to make sense. Like I say, in terms of structure. In terms of kind of like having having that sort of um, hint of redemption, so yeah, like yeah. might be rebuked. Yeah, but I feel like I feel like the the bit at the end where they're like, "You still want to kill this guy?" and I'm not sure is more to make the point that because again, like they're going off to do vigilante violence, which mm-hmm. is bad, but they're going off to kill a guy who raped a woman while she was on fire. Which mm-hmm. I feel like if you're going to commit vigilante violence, I feel like that's good that's target. One, yeah, that's mm-hmm. one that it's hard to get too upset about. Mm-hmm. But I do feel like the movie having the two characters go. Rather than going, I'm absolutely committed to this, I'm absolutely sure this is the right thing to do, having them themselves say, I'm, I'm not sure about this, mm-hmm. is a way for the movie to signal that, you know, this is not the redemption narrative you think it is. Mm. That, like, what they did is they had, they were teased with the possibility of redemption with, like, all this anger only begets greater anger at the mm-hmm. moment, and that comes at the moment when it looks like the rapist might, they might actually have the rapist in custody. Mm-hmm. It looks like they might get a happy ending after all and get that yanked out from under them. Mm-hmm. So it's like, they had this opportunity to accept and move on, but they chose not to take it. And yeah. like them going off to kill this guy is not a happy ending. It's not them riding off in the sunset to see justice done. This is them committing to their, I think, your, your sure. damnation, as you said. Yeah, yeah. It's it's um, it's it's the other possibility is Sam Rockwell putting a shotgun in his mouth and blowing his brains out, like the the, the way the conversation's shot. Yeah. Yeah. There's, a, like there's a point where second. he's on the phone and yeah. he's holding the gun to his face. I'm just like, I don't like this scene at all. Absolutely. Well, or is he going to kill his own mom? Mm. <laughs> Maybe Because he did earlier on threaten I'll shoot your head off. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. there is some foreshadowing, yeah. Well, Andrew also pointed out that it looks like those scenes are shot at two different times of day. It does. Yeah, it looks true. like they're having a lake house moment or a your name moment <laughs> where they're conversing through time with one mm. another. Yeah. Um, also, Penelope's, what was it, 10 second trip to the bathroom. As well. Also, their their phones are um, would seem to indicate that this isn't a contemporaneous movie. Yeah, all the flip true. phones and landlines. Yeah, so that's another reason why I sort of suspected it's maybe set around two thousand three, two thousand two ish, because it does have that, and maybe maybe it makes sense in that context because McDonough would have maybe written it around that time as well, because mm. it does make sense in terms of like the American character and like grief and violence as a response to grief, because mm-hmm. there are a lot of American flags in particular, say outside the. Um, 
outside the police station, for example. And so a lot of American flags in America. Okay, just to be clear. Yeah, but I, I want. I don't know how much it's a, it's a choice. I feel like if you, uh, it would be strange. <laughs> not to but, show yeah, American actually, flags. Actually, it is probably in popular culture with things set in America. It's probably strange that we don't see more American flags. <laughs> there are a lot of them. Okay, Denmark as well for some reason tend, tend to have a lot of flags for oh. some reason. Oh, yeah. Maybe we're just Irish just, people are very comfortable in our patriotism. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I I think in Ireland and in the UK you associate like flags with a, a certain type of like very um, with <laughs> almost kind of extreme nationalism. Like, Whereas it's just taken for granted in yeah. Denmark and yeah. stuff. But I do wonder... Anyway, like, sorry, another yeah. tangent. <laughs> well, no, no, I mean, I was on a tangent as well, because I was wondering, like, in the context in which it was written and imagined by McDonough, it could almost play as a metaphor for, like, you know, post-9-11 war and terror trauma, yeah, where you have the sense that, like, it's a country dealing with grief and loss that's unexplainable, and then channeling that into anger that leads to, mm-hmm. like, global crisis and stuff. That's very interesting. And yeah. you have that sort of argument about, like, it's a country with lots of sand. So you have that mm-hmm. literal connection between the violence being done overseas with the violence that's happening at home. Because, I mean, Mm -hmm. one of the aspects of the movie, and we talked about this when we talked about it being appropriate as a sort of a Me Too movie when it's not really at all, Mm -hmm. is that McDonough seems to be making a movie that's very much against a culture of outrage. Like, watching it now, my big takeaway on having seen the film the first time was that this is a movie about the culture of outrage. Because you have, like, online Mm -hmm. anger spreads faster than any positive emotion. Mm -hmm. It spreads faster than joy. It spreads faster than happiness Mm -hmm. or even sorrow, grief. Like anger spreads and it, it infects and, and it becomes. There's a real celebration of it. Yeah. Of mm. of how someone can be um, through kind of um, fierceness. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder, like, is the movie sort of getting at that? Maybe. It, yeah. I mean. I mean. Well, maybe. Do you think I mean, that was the, sort of the, like a conscious thing? The um, uh, internet doesn't really kind of celebrate nuance or like um, the. Um, Shades logical premises yeah. towards an argument it, it's it's kind of like people are raw, angry raw and that's, emotional. that's the important thing yeah. and it's impo- important to, to channel that and I mean again this is one of the things that it becomes problematic when you deal with it as a socio-political movie because mm. the anger that's felt by African Americans is largely justified mm-hmm. the anger that is felt by women mm. is largely justified whereas I think that if you're making a broader statement about how anger spreads online or how anger spreads through networks or even how like people respond to anger on like a national level. I feel like you can have that discussion and you can have a discussion about how our responses to anger are not always logical or rational. Mm-hmm. But I feel like in this cultural moment, it, it seems like it landed almost at the wrong time. If that makes sense. Like I feel like now is not the time necessarily to, to be having these arguments about whether or not anger is justified yeah. because you, you get stuck into this sort of... Uh, well, I'm Especially when I suppose the movie is dealing with something um, so sensitive. Yeah, you know, which is this murder and sexual assault, and then also very tangentially these racial issues. Um, it is it is weird that it, it it kind of moves towards this anger begets anger, and maybe get over it. Basically. Pick your battles. <laughs> yeah. um, when, as you say, there are so many justified reasons to be angry about yeah. these things. I suppose maybe it's the way in which you deal with that anger. Yeah, yeah I mean, the movie is asking us to think about that. I don't like. Maybe it's making a point about uh, misplaced uh, anger. Yeah. I suppose because um, all the anger in the movie is misplaced. Yeah. Like Wilby is not a reasonable target because, by all accounts, yeah. it seems like Wilby's done as much as he can. Mm-hmm. In the same way that Red is not a legitimate target for Dick, Dixon's anger, because mm-hmm. not only did the billboards not have anything to do with the suicide, they also didn't come from Red. Mm-hmm. You know, like, there's a sense that um, even the police station being burnt down. Is 
is revealed to be an act of misdirected anger because it's it's revealed that it was actually Charlie who burned down the billboards. Mm. Like you you have this sort of sense that plays out the film that anger is is misdirected. That when you are when you are angry or when you're grief when you're like because it is mm-hmm. it is a response to grief and it like even yeah. when Willoughby is talking writing to his wife he's talking about how her initial response to his death will be anger like she will be angry mm-hmm. at him and that's natural, mm-hmm. but like there's a sense that the response to grief being anger, that you don't care where that anger goes as long as it's targeted. Like, even... There's a sense that Mildred uses the three billboards as almost, like, a gravesite for her daughter. Because she goes out and she tends flowers at them. And, like, as corny as that scene with the deer was, as manipulative as it was, (laughs) I really liked the scene of her tending to those billboards and, like, Mm. putting plants under them. And even when they burn down... Like the the sense of sheer grief that she has, because it's for her, it's a memorial site, and and there's mm. it's no coincidence that the billboards are like visible from her house. Yeah, like it's not she's not really making a statement to the world. She's more creating a monument for herself so that she can remember. If that right. makes sense, and or, that's something or, that's pointed out in the movie as well. Yeah. It's like they're not even on a main road. Who's going to see these billboards? And as you say, it sort of acts as this symbolic site for yeah. her, rather than oh, this is on everybody's. This way is to a work point. Yeah, this is yeah. a point. It's mm-hmm. actually going to do something constructive. Mm. Um, if it if it's a kind of a memorial for her daughter, it's like imagine like her gravestone. Where it says raped while dying, it it's it, there's something, kind of I know she's I know what you're saying that she's kind of tending the the the, the flower uh, baskets uh, for example mm-hmm. or flower the, baskets and the fact that the billboards are like she's defending very... them from the world like mm-hmm. and will be even will be even deter- even like phrases it in that terms as letters he's like I imagine you defending those billboards for I can her. I yeah. can see where her son is coming from oh yeah, yeah. Like, the, I agree with is, his son entirely this is this is um. Um, thank, okay. thanks mom for for mm. uh, for the old rape while dying route yeah mm. yeah but I, for, I, I, for, 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 you I imagine the the, 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 the the kind of movie from from the point of view of anybody of, else of, of that poor um, child yeah whose whose uh, sister has 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 been raped and murdered to 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 have to relive that every day coming and going from school. And I think maybe he's one of the few characters whose anger isn't really misplaced because we see him get angry at her for erecting the billboards and we see him get angry at his father for physically threatening his mother. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and again, so, like, I think maybe that ties into the kids though. The idea yeah, that, that kid, he has his head on straight. The kids, ironically yeah. enough, are all right. Mm-hmm. Um, to quote that, you know, Annette Benning. <laughs> um, but the, the kids, uh, and uh, like, that's one of the things that prevents the movie from feeling like full-blown nihilism for me. Sure is the sense that maybe the kids are better placed than the adults. You know? I don't know. Perhaps. Children are the future. Yeah. <laughs> we can only hope. That's Until they, uh, a positive ending. <laughs> Until they become old and bigoted and, and, yeah. and stuff like that. I liked seeing... Is his name Clark Peters? Oh, yes. Yeah. That's Anna Crombie. Yes. Yeah. He's phenomenal. Fans of The Wire will, will remember him as uh, Lester Freeman. Mm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's great to see him. Um, Sadly, his furniture did not... His tiny furniture did not survive the blame. Oh. I actually really... I like the yeah. scene where Anna <laughs> Crombie has very clearly just decided to re- open the police station that has just been burnt <laughs> out. Just it's just a shell. Like, everything is burnt. There's a big crater in the corner. Um, you get the sense that you're not even sure that his computer works. Like, mm. you get a sense, you wonder if he just came in and sat down at his desk without, like, replacing anything except the Missouri flag and the, um, and the American flag because mm. flags are everywhere in this movie. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I actually, I quite liked his character. And I like the fact mm. that he was a no-nonsense sort of character. I feel like one of the things that Clark Peters does very well is and maybe, maybe again, it's it's an example. It's a bad 
you know, it's not a great thing because an example of the roles that we write for African-American men of a certain age, mm. but where he tends to act as a voice of reason um, to the point where in the fifth season of The Wire, when he's like, by the way, invent a serial killer, the audience is like, maybe inventing a serial killer isn't the worst thing to do. <laughs> yeah. um, but even, I, even say Jessica Jones, where he pops up and he plays a police officer in yeah, that, for example, that's right. he's, he's very much, he's a grounded source. And even here, I, like he seems to be one of the few characters who understands mm. what's happening and is like, yeah. Okay. You need to work out your anger by burning a police station. Let you <laughs> off the hook once. Everybody gets one. I. I like. I. It's something I enjoyed about his character and also about Dixon was when 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 he says, uh, "What is it like? You uh, crackers like, get up oh, and yeah. do some police work." <laughs> and he's like, oh, "I think that's like- racist." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That is probably the most well observed like, racism moment in the movie. Like yeah. There's yeah. earlier in the movie where he, where he's saying kind of like, Oh, it's it's, it's uh, N word torturing. You can't mm-hmm. say N word torturing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. people We're, torturing. People of colour torturing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I do yeah. That is the, that is perhaps the, the best example of Dixon mm-hmm. being racist in sort of an ambient way. Mm-hmm. It's like white people are clearly the oppressed by <laughs> in this community right here. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, and also even even the little bit where he's like, where Abercrombie shows up and Dixon, you know, Cedric's like, uh, and you see some papers and Abercrombie's like, you're really going to ask me for my papers. And Dixon from the back of the room, having just thrown a red LD out of a window, is like, yeah, make him show you his papers. <laughs> <laughs> How in the name of goodness did Dixon think this was going to go down? That like it would turn out Abercrombie was just some guy who'd wandered up and didn't have any papers. Yeah. <laughs> Like, he just happens to be a random passing police chief who thought it would be a delightful role to play. He came in at just the right time. <laughs> right. <laughs> to witness that like, guy getting thrown through yeah. a window. I actually... Didn't do anything yeah. to stop him. It's <laughs> 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 interesting. Yeah. It's like there was a big I've, warning I've just song. been sent to observe and report for the moment. And, uh, until what? I present my papers... Uh, I can't actually do anything. <laughs> I'm forbidden to interfere, like, yeah. the watch to the watcher. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Make sure that I, yeah, flash my badge before I walk over <laughs> yeah. and check that Red is alive. Yeah. T- I actually really like that sequence it's the only sequence where I think McDonough is consciously directing in inverted commas mm. but the bit where the camera follows Dixon from leaving the police station going up into the advertising yeah. agency attacking Red throwing him out the window walking down it's actually a very well constructed mm. scene it's set to his master's voice by Masters of Folk I believe as well um, and it's that was the a o- great scene yeah, yeah it's, it's the only, only point in the film where you go this may not really work on stage because a lot of McDonough's writing is very stagey obviously being a playwright and stuff it's a point where it feels like McDonough, as much as I love the scene, I think it's fantastic, it's very well constructed. It's a moment where McDonough seems to be going, yep, this is definitely a movie. <laughs> definitely a movie. Yeah. Um, but it, it's fantastically well executed. And I, I actually really like the end note of, uh, of Clark Peters flashing his badge and walking over. Because I feel mm-hmm. like that's a nice way to close that scene as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if I would just say one thing again about like the way the film deals with race, I think we've all agreed it doesn't deal with it particularly well. If Martin McDonough actually wanted to make an interesting movie about systemic racism, maybe that's what could have been on the billboards. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's just a thought I had hearing, you know, all of this critique of the film as not dealing with racial tension and systemic racism particularly well. I was like, yeah, that's true. I mean, it's two different movies in a way, yeah. you know, to tack on something as hefty as systemic racism in the police force uh, into a completely different film that is, as we've said, dealing with grief and misdirected anger and kind of a way through that. Um, maybe that's maybe that's what it could have done 
Just be, being honest, though, it's, it's kind I of like one of those things where I, I would be very wary of a Madonna film dealing with race. I feel yes. like there are, <laughs> there are directors fair. I would that like to fair. actually see tackling race. Mm. Um, and there are directors who do tackle it very, very well. Mm-hmm. Um, is it his brother as well? That... Uh, John McDonough, who did The Guard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah which yeah. has similar problematic uh, undertones in some respects. Yeah. With race. With yeah. race mm. as well. Like, on... No need for, 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 no, for either McDonough yeah. to apply yeah. for this, this particular post. Yeah, that's fair. Um, and I, I should say, actually, mm. like, I, I really, really like this movie. I do think that mm. it's it's not what it's sold as. Um, sure. It's not what it arrives as. And I think a lot of the criticism that it gets is entirely reasonable in context of what it's been presented as, but mm-hmm. not in terms of what it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's an issue that is, it is an issue with the movie. It is also mm-hmm. an issue with how the movie's marketed. Um, but yeah, so other than that, um, Stacey, if yes. our listeners are looking to get a bit more Stacey in their lives, where can we find yeah. you? Uh, well, I am the film reviews editor on state.ie and my Twitter handle is at Silver St. Great. So that's probably it for the moment. Which is a great Twitter handle. I think I've said that. Oh, thank you. It's fantastic. Yeah. I like my Batman in jokes. Um, <laughs> it's a Batman in joke. Meanwhile, uh, myself and Andrew. Andrew can be found on... On, on Twitter at uh, A-Q-U-I-N-N-I-U-Q-A. Uh, are like you can mostly find me by following the 250 and seeing like when they at me (laughs) knowing that I'll probably like and retweet life hack yeah yeah yeah, you can follow Andrew's really just a soft puppet account (laughs) exactly it's designed to up our following numbers uh, really by that that one extra we had some interesting likes I think we had 13 likes for one of the uh, one of our our tweets this week we had some interesting people I'm about to say, did you notice the people who were like? I did, those? I did, I saw that. Quite interesting. Yeah, I had no idea. I think those are the kind of people who will be very interested in our coverage of Vladimir Putin's propaganda. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Because I feel like they're the same people who would vote for that for all the awards <laughs> that it's winning as well. Um, you can follow the 250 at, at the 250, uh, spelled with real words. You can follow us on SoundCloud. Uh, you can get us on Stitcher, iTunes, wherever good podcasts are not sold. Um, we will be back next week. Um, we are not sure whether we'll be back next week covering Call Me By Your Name, which is currently at 24,500 votes on a score of 8.4. So I can get 500 Ooh. votes by next weekend. How we'll m- be covering that. How many of those are the are the thousand people that give everything a one score? <laughs> <laughs> power voters. That's what yeah. they are. Um, the wonders. Yeah, the IMDb mm. has this sort of power base of yeah. people who are super users um, who mostly super get there get there by rating movies one star reflexively. Uh, it's remarkable to see. Like that's why all yeah. your uh, all the prestige pictures, like for example, mm. the Post, will mm. start with a horrible rating of like three point six. Wow. Um, yeah. Mm. Whereas, you know, on the other hand... It, it's, like, it's very much to the credit of the IMDb 250 that there are so many great movies in it. I mean, we, we talk smack <laughs> about, about the list a lot, but considering some of the kind of dynamics of the list, it's, it's, it has some quite good movies in there, yeah. which you can look forward to listening to. to it, mm-hmm. But also look forward to listening to some bad movies that for some reason are on the list. As well. Hopefully. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah. So, next week, we will hopefully be covering Call Me By Your Name. If not, we will be back with uh, Crimea, the Russian uh, war epic about the invasion of the Ukraine that deals with the conflict in a very even-handed and not at all propagandist point of view. Yeah, um, and it's a love story. As well. <laughs> love in the time of righteous war, um, I think is the official tagline. Yeah, um, I may have loosely translated that. Writing the wrongs of Khrushchev's <laughs> moment of insanity. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so you can follow us there and see us next week. But until then, take it easy, guys. Bye. 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 But the one that I like best He sings inside my chest